This episode is brought to you by Milano Cookies. Look, sometimes that long Zen yoga class is just not in the cards. So maybe a cookie is. Pepperidge Farm Milano believes you should make some time for yourself once in a while. I know I have a particular space in my sewing room that I like to just take a few minutes every day. I sit there. I think about things. It's kind of like meditation and munching at the same time. You can get that yummy, beautiful cookie flavor. It makes it luxurious and delightful, and I always feel recharged. Milano cookies are truly a treat worthy of your me time. They're delicate and crispy with luxuriously rich chocolate in the middle. You really want to keep these just for you. So remember to save something for yourself with Pepperidge Farm Milano. Hey guys, I'm Shane Bacon, and I want to tell you about a new podcast called Get a Grip with Max Homa and Shane Bacon. One guy that has probably hit a 350-yard drive, considers himself an athlete mostly because of his unreal papa shot abilities, and has in fact started to show off signs of a tricep forming, is our own Max Homa, PGA Tour winner and fan favorite online. Max and myself turn out new episodes every week to give the fan a unique look at golf and all that comes with it from someone that spends his work weeks on tracks we all dream to play, grinding and out with the best in the world. Listen and follow Get a Grip with Max Soma and Shane Bacon on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts right now. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Katie Lambert. And I'm Sarah Dowdy. And Sarah, I have a question for you today. What do Kate Blanchett, Judy Dench, and Helen Mirren have in common? Hmm. <laughs> I think I know the answer to this one. They've all played Queen Elizabeth I. Actually, Helen Mirren has the distinction of playing Elizabeth I and Elizabeth II. Right, so you don't need to send us any correction emails for that one. But it's not just Hollywood that has a fascination with Elizabeth I. She was a really interesting person who had a very long reign during contentious times. Yeah, she's brilliant. She's incredibly intelligent. She uh, balances her country in a very contentious time. And what she's probably most famous for, though, is being the Virgin Queen. Right. But was she really the Virgin Queen? Well, we're, we're not going to get too much into that today. But she does use kind of coquettish deflection that she probably inherits from her mother to keep suitors on their toes well into her old age. So, you know, whether it's an English lord or a foreign prince, they think that they might have a chance with Elizabeth. Well, she was the original game player, and they did not have a chance. No, they didn't. Because the same queen, as a young girl, vowed that she would never marry. And that's what we're going to find out about today. And that might make sense if you know that Elizabeth I was the daughter of Henry VIII, who was notorious for cutting off his wife's heads and or divorcing them. Henry had, of course, famously defied the Pope to divorce his first wife, Catherine of Aragon, with whom he had a daughter, Mary, to marry Anne Boleyn. And Anne Boleyn was only the second commoner elevated to the consort's throne. She was very... Um, very unpopular with a lot of people, considered just a courtesan who had worked her way to the throne. Um, but in 1533, Anne Boleyn is pregnant with her and Henry's first child. And around the same time, there are also the first signs of trouble in the marriage between Henry and Anne Boleyn. Henry, up until now, has been completely infatuated with his wife. Um, but he's starting to stray, and he's surprised that Anne is actually angry about this. Imagine. Um, something, well, Catherine, Catherine of Aragon was 
sort of the quietly suffering queen, but Anne is upset. And Henry wants a son very badly, as does Anne, because this will cement her place in Henry's life. He needs an heir. That's largely why he cast aside Catherine of Aragon in the first place, because they didn't have a living son. And everyone thinks it will be a boy. It's only the famous astrologer William Glover who says that Anne will have a woman child and a prince of the land. But surprise, on September 7th, 1533, a daughter is born in a bedchamber decorated with tapestries of St. Ursula and 11,000 virgins. And Henry is not the most supportive husband after the birth of his daughter. To say the least. He tells Anne, you and I are both young, and by God's grace, boys will follow. Um, but there's still been all of these celebrations planned for the arrival of a prince. And they go on with most of them. They... Uh, have to add an S to the birth announcements, altering prince to princess. Uh, Elizabeth does get a te deum for the celebration of a new heir and a really fancy christening. She's wrapped in purple and fur. Um, but she doesn't get the attendance ceremonies that would be fit for an heir. Uh, Henry cancels the tournaments that have been planned, the fireworks. London doesn't celebrate the birth with bonfires. So it's kind of played down, at least from Henry's side. But Anne is just infatuated with the new baby, and she really wants to breastfeed, which was considered a big no-no. Not okay. A queen cannot breastfeed in this time. No. And they treat Elizabeth very uh, seriously and very grown up. At three months, she's given her own household, uh, which is kind of funny. More than a play kitchen. (laughs) Um, Hatfield Palace. And Meanwhile, her older half-sister, Princess Mary, is being horribly degraded. She's deprived of her title. Her household is disbanded. Uh, Anne Boleyn is very jealous of Henry and his older daughter and won't let them see each other. And um, even tries to urge Henry to put Catherine, his ex-wife, and Mary to death or have them oh, dispatched Anne. some way. Um But Henry's antagonizing his old family, but he's not going to go as far as actually killing them. No, and unfortunately, Anne Boleyn doesn't have a lot of luck after this as far as pregnancies go. She does not produce a male heir. She has a lot of stillbirths and miscarriages, which some people say she may have been Rh negative, which now we have things to help you with that at the time. And that would make sense, having the first birth of a healthy baby followed by miscarriages and stillbirths. And that would mean that Anne never would have been able to give birth to a boy. But Anne really knows that it's getting down to the wire about delivering an heir. When Catherine dies in 1536, she she's starting to realize her power over the king is waning. He doesn't like her as much anymore. He's realized that she's not a very adept queen. And she knows that if she doesn't deliver him an heir, she could be put aside just as easily. And kind of the chief consolation during this time of miscarriages and worry for Anne is the little Elizabeth. And she visits her a lot. And Henry's actually really proud of his young daughter, too. He shows her off to ambassadors, sometimes all dressed up, but sometimes naked to show how well-made she is. Oh, God. It's kind of creepy. Imagine Henry VIII on Facebook. It'd be all over that place. Oh, he'd have the naked baby pictures. But it ends up not working out. And to say the very, very least, he accuses Anne of adultery and treason, among other 
trumped up charges and also has their marriage declared invalid, which makes no sense because how could it be invalid and she could also be committing adultery? Oh, well, uh, he slept with her sister before they were married. Oh, that's and that's too, too close for comfort. So she is executed. Elizabeth isn't even three yet. And because the marriage was declared invalid, Elizabeth is also now illegitimate. So this is obviously an incredibly traumatic event in young Elizabeth's life. And she's precocious enough that she probably realized pretty quickly what had happened. She asks why she's gone from Lady Princess to Lady Elizabeth. And we don't actually know how she was told of the death, but... It, it probably happened pretty soon. And I'm assuming it wasn't in the most sensitive way. Henry gets remarried very quickly. It's, what, like a week after yeah, the execution? Yeah, a little more than a week. To Jane Seymour. And this new wife wants Henry and Mary, his daughter from his first marriage, to make up. Who's been so insulted and cast aside and neglected. Right. So their relationship improves. And Mary is Catholic, which will become important a little bit later. So she now has people looking out for her, but no one is looking after little Elizabeth. Yeah, she's considered a bastard and the daughter of a traitor, so she doesn't have many supporters. But fortunately, her older sister Mary is fond of her and visits her and um, even persuades the king to invite her to court. For right, because she's been sent away mm-hmm. and not allowed to be around everybody anymore. So there's there's this really brief window of happy family time for the Tudors um, in the early part of Henry's marriage to Jane. Um, and finally, Henry gets what he's been after for decades, a male heir. Who will become Edward VI. Yeah, Edward is born. Unfortunately, this little happy period does not last long because Jane dies shortly after childbirth um, and Elizabeth goes into Mary's care. And Henry, of course, marries again, Anne of Cleves. And little six-year-old Elizabeth writes a very precious letter to her new stepmother asking if she can come to court. And Anne is very charmed by this letter. Elizabeth is so smart and it's very polite. And Henry gives a very rude response, um, you know, forbidding her to come. Um, but we're kind of glossing over these marriages here. But briefly, Anne concedes annulment to Henry because Henry says that he can't sleep with her. He's unattracted to her. Um, and Anne actually retires and lives a pretty comfortable life. She's lucky she escapes the axe because she's so um, she's so willing to give in to any of Henry's demands. Um, and she's really still fond of Elizabeth and knows that um, she, Anne, probably won't remarry and have kids of her own and takes a maternal interest in her and even asks if Elizabeth can visit her sometimes, and Henry's actually okay with that. But with his short marriage to Anne of Cleves set aside, Henry finds a new wife, and she's a teenager, Catherine Howard. And he's so happy with her for a little while, and uh, they have so much fun together. He's He's kind of the Henry you think of in portraits by this point. He's grossly overweight, and he has an abscess on his leg that oozes and smells bad. So he's not the dashing young man he used to be. So we have to kind of wonder what things were like for Catherine Howard. But they get along very nice, and um, things are fine until it comes out that she's not a virgin. She's been employing her former lovers in her household, and she's accused of treason and executed. And this is 
a very traumatic event in the young Elizabeth's life. Right. At this time, she's eight or nine, so she's old enough to know what's really going on. Well, you, you have to kind of think... She sees this happening and she realizes, oh, this is what happened to my mother. And so, yeah, by this point, she's lost several stepmothers, seen several people beheaded. It's pretty traumatic. And she tells her friend that she will never marry because to her, marriage equals death. But Henry, being Henry, marries again. And this time it is the widow Catherine Parr. And She really wants to be a good stepmother and let these three children have a normal life. So she invites them all to come to court. So Edward and Mary and Elizabeth are all together again. And this is another sort of short window of happiness for the Tudors. Um, they, They all come in and out of court and spend time together. And Catherine Parr supervises their education. Um, And there's also a new act of succession. It goes Prince Edward, the son and heir, any new offspring. But by this point, it's extremely likely that um, Henry couldn't have children. Um, and then Mary and then Elizabeth. But Henry doesn't fix the issue of Elizabeth being illegitimate, which comes comes up against her later. Right. And in early 1544, Henry banishes Elizabeth from court. And we're still not sure why that happened. She's just a a child. Exactly. What could she have done? But Catherine convinces him to forgive her and let her come back. And Catherine really has even more than just that maternal interest in these poor, orphaned, abandoned children who have gone in and out of their father's favor and had really rough childhoods. She's also really interested in their education. We mentioned earlier she was going to supervise Elizabeth's education, but she makes her whole court a center of feminine learning to quote Alison Weir, who's written a great biography on Elizabeth and a history of all of Henry's wives, if you want to, if you want to go from number one to six. Um, and Elizabeth and Edward both turn into these intellectual prodigies because of this really strict education they have and really high expectations that Henry has for them. Right. One of Elizabeth's tutors said, her mind has no womanly weakness, her perseverance is equal to that of a man, and her memory long keeps what it quickly picks up. She's really smart. Yeah. She knows Greek, Latin, French, Italian, and what, Welsh, Welsh. Spanish? And um, she plays music, she composes, she's, you know, good at more feminine pursuits like needlework. She's really good at book binding. She's got a lovely hand in calligraphy and she is interested in riding and hunting and shooting crossbows. Some of these are adult pursuits, but she's a very talented woman. And she, as a child, she spends almost every waking hour with books or religious exercises. So Elizabeth is prepared for a future that would require some diplomacy, education, and intelligence. And that's a good thing because Henry dies. And this makes Catherine the Dowager Queen, and it makes little Edward, who's nine or ten at the time, his heir. Yeah, and Elizabeth is actually with her younger brother when they're told that their father has died, and when the men of the court pay her brother homage, which must have been um, a pretty emotional sight for her. Um, but Edward is no longer allowed by his council to see his stepmother or his sisters. And Edward is a very 
quiet child. He's obviously had a difficult childhood as well. And he misses these women who are the, the only people who he really loves. Right. He's only 10. Yeah. So and I have a lot of sympathy for little Edward. He writes to them a lot, and um, it's it's generally kind of a sad time again. And again, since Edward is so young, there are other people who are taking positions of power, and a man named Edward Seymour becomes Lord Protector of England. But his brother, Thomas Seymour, doesn't have a place on the council, and he's a very ambitious man who doesn't like feeling left out. These are both Edward's maternal uncles, so Jane Seymour's brothers. And Thomas Seymour decides that perhaps the best way to finagle his way into power is to propose to 13-year-old Elizabeth. He, he knows Mary is Catholic, so she's not going to be a good match. But Elizabeth seems pretty uh, pretty good deal. So he starts flirting with her and courting her. And she's only 13, but she knows that it's about his ambition. Still, she's 13, so she's kind of flattered. Um, but she still turns him down says, neither my age nor my inclination allows me to think of marriage. Um, so he goes back to an earlier love, Catherine Parr, who is the Dowager Queen. And Catherine had loved Thomas before, but... Before marrying Henry VIII. Right, but once the king decides he wants to marry you, you marry the king, especially if the king is prone to beheading people. So <laughs> she ended up with Henry, of course, but now she has her chance. The only problem is that she marries him with what is called indecent haste at the time. It's just a few weeks after Henry died, and something that quick would have to be approved by the council because it's so soon she could potentially, let's say, have had a baby with Henry, and then you would never then know. whose baby would it be? Exactly. The know. line of succession is muddled once again. So she marries him. They're in trouble, but they're forgiven because little Edward really likes her. Yeah. So her, her young stepson likes her. He likes his uncle. So he's fine with the marriage. He doesn't see the political implications of his very ambitious uncle getting a little bit closer to him and to his affairs. And Elizabeth goes to live in this household with Catherine Parr and Thomas Seymour. And people are a little bit scandalized, or at least Mary is. Mary is, is scandalized that, you know, that Catherine accepted the proposal only six weeks after becoming a widow. But Elizabeth is basically just like, I'm going to do whatever I want, or I'm at least going to wait until the scandal dies down. Um, she says that they don't want to offend the Seymours. They should play it cool because the Seymours are, are, have so much power now. And she also says that her stepmother has been so kind to her, it's not really her place to, to offend her. Right. But things at this household get a little creepy, would maybe be a good word, because yes. Thomas still has that interest in the very young Elizabeth, and it's definitely of a sexual nature. Yes. Um, they start romping together, and that's the word that's always used. They they chase each other and have tickle fights, and um, it's all pretty unseemly from our perspective, but to Catherine, Elizabeth is just a child, and um, Thomas actually jokingly kind of calls himself her stepfather, and it all seems okay. It just seems like a, a family Family fun. Well, especially he makes sure that he does it in front of other people because 
there's the implication then that if it were inappropriate, you know, surely he wouldn't want to do it in front of. In front of his wife or Elizabeth's governess. But since he's tickling this young girl in her nightgown in front of his wife, it must be fine. But things get even more inappropriate when Catherine gets pregnant. And so I assume they were no longer having relations with each other. And Thomas focuses his sexual energy even more strongly on little Elizabeth. He would bust into Elizabeth's bedchamber in his nightgown and slippers. And um, he would only stay, though, if she was in bed where he would tickle her or mess with her. And um, once he even tried to kiss her and Mrs. Catherine Ashley, um, Elizabeth's lady-in-waiting, cried for shame, you know, don't. Be careful. And uh, would even smack her on the bottom, too. So he's he's pretty, pretty reckless. And she, again, is about 14. So for her, this is a little bit of a youthful infatuation. You know, she's flattered by this older man's attentions, and she's a bit too naive, maybe, and innocent to understand what's really going on. He's a manipulative predator, yeah. and she's too young to see it. And Catherine Parr is so oblivious, she even joins in sometimes with these romps. Uh, You know, just everyone having a grand old time, apparently. But Thomas is worried because Elizabeth can't quite conceal her infatuation. So he's worried he's going to get into trouble. And so he tells Catherine that he saw Elizabeth with her arms around a man's neck. And, of course, the Dowager Queen is horrified by this and asks Mrs. Ashley about, you know, what do you know anything about this? And Mrs. Ashley doesn't want to get involved. So she refers her to Elizabeth. Passing the buck. Yeah. And um, Elizabeth, of course, says, you know, that's not true. I don't even know any men outside of your household. And that's when Catherine gets her first inkling that something is amiss. Because if Elizabeth isn't lying... Why is her husband? And so some accounts have her finding Elizabeth in Thomas's arms in that April. They come apart. They're ashamed. And no one thinks the relationship was consummated. But clearly, that was the track it they was were on. going in that direction. So Elizabeth leaves the household. I believe she's asked to leave by Catherine. Yeah, and there's a really awkward meeting between Catherine and Elizabeth right before she goes when Catherine tells her, God has given you great qualities. Cultivate them always and labor to improve them, for I believe you are destined by heaven to be queen of England. And Elizabeth is so ashamed she can't even look at her. No, and of course at this time she realizes that she hurt Catherine and the ladies part maybe not on the best terms but they do make up later because Catherine realizes you know she's only 14 she had no idea yeah and uh, Elizabeth is never so foolish again about her her honor and her place in the succession she realizes that she jeopardized it all And Elizabeth takes care after this to appear as the perfect Protestant woman. She's dressed very plainly. She's modest in demeanor. She's very sober in general. And she wants to give off this, you know, this image of being not that kind of girl. And this essentially saves her life later. But but we won't skip ahead to there quite yet. Catherine and Thomas do have their child. 
Catherine dies in childbirth, and it's sort of the beginning of a rift between Elizabeth and her older sister, Mary, who had gotten along pretty well before then. Um, about seven months after the baby is born, Thomas is executed for treason. This is his ambitions really throw him to the wind, don't they? You have to roll your eyes a little bit. He's caught with a knife outside of Edward's bedchamber. And some people think Elizabeth is involved, too. They're both questioned extremely thoroughly. But she holds up much better than you would think a 14-year-old would to that kind of questioning. And she's perfectly calm, cool, and composed. Yeah, she acts like the ideal woman for her brother's court. Um, and her her little brother, Edward, likes her a lot, but he wouldn't have had any power to save her should she be implicated with Thomas's treason. And speaking of Edward, about the same time, he comes down with either tuberculosis or some other sort of respiratory infection. We're not sure, but it's very clear that his health is in grave danger and he is about to die. And this is when all the succession stuff just blows up. So back to that line of succession we were talking about earlier, the one that Henry decreed when he married Catherine Parr. It made Edward, of course, his heir, followed by any other babies that might be born, followed by Mary, followed by Elizabeth, followed by the descendants of his youngest sister, not his eldest sister, because we should say his eldest sister's descendants, that's Mary, Queen of Scots, and Henry's great enemy is Scotland, of course. So... His younger sister's heirs are kind of low down on this line of succession, um, but they jump to the top right after Edward dies. And their interests put forth the teenage Lady Jane Grey, who, again, is a descendant of Henry VIII's youngest sister, Mary. And Guilford Dudley marries Lady Jane, thinking that the political power of his family combined with her somewhat dubious blood claim together will make them a stronger candidate than Mary. And so she's this sad puppet queen for a few days before she's executed as well. And kind of an interesting connection, Lady Jane Grey is actually educated for a time in the same household as Elizabeth. And the cousins are very much alike. They look similar. They're both incredibly intelligent. But Elizabeth takes no part in this coup, which is pretty smart because... It doesn't work. Right. And Mary gets the crown. And she initially has a lot of support. People like her despite the fact that she's Catholic. But she loses that very quickly when she marries the very Catholic Philip of Spain. And then, of course, she sanctions the burning of 300 Protestants over her reign, um, getting the name Bloody Mary. So that doesn't really endear a queen to... Her people. No, and the people decide they want their Protestant Elizabeth instead to get the Catholics out of their country. And so they institute various uprisings, and Elizabeth gets caught up in them a little bit, not by her own doing, just because she's the figurehead. Yeah. So one of these is Sir Thomas Wyatt's rebellion in 1554, which began as a protest against Mary's marriage to Philip. And Elizabeth is accused of... uh, being involved in this and spends three months in the tower in fear of her life. But there's no strong evidence against her, even though Mary is very suspicious and um, thinks that she's secretly a Protestant. And um, Elizabeth does get out of the tower, though. Because Mary is pregnant, and therefore Elizabeth is not as much of a threat to her, you know, if Mary has her own heir. 
But it turns out that she wasn't really pregnant. And this happens again in Mary's reign. She has two false pregnancies. And no one knows if it was, there was, say, a physical cause for it, perhaps an ovarian cyst or some sort of cancer, because she had all the symptoms of pregnancy, or if it was pseudocyesis, which is a hysterical pregnancy that's, you know, a, a, more of a psychological issue, because yeah. there was so much pressure on every so woman to air. produce an heir. Uh, but this stint in the tower is another one of those really traumatic events for Elizabeth's life. And she she's thankful for for her escape for her entire life. As, as late as 1579, she's still composing private prayers to thank God for pulling me from the prison to the palace. And Elizabeth plays the game during Mary's reign very much. Again, she's doing that outward obedience, perhaps inner disobedience thing. Mary is positive that Elizabeth is secretly Protestant, but in deference to her sister, Elizabeth practices you know, the Catholic rites and rituals and outwardly. She goes to London for her coronation, and she's she plays it cool during these years. So Mary's horrible childhood, growing up with Henry VIII and the dishonor of her mother and uh, her inability to have a child, her horrible reign killing all these people, and Philip, her husband's abandonment of her. He moves back to Spain, so she's really not going to have a child now. Leaves her a broken woman in middle age, and she dies. On November 17th, 1558, and when Elizabeth is told, the story goes that she's outside at Hatfield, the estate, reading under a tree, and she's rendered speechless initially. And she sinks to her knees and says in Latin, this is the Lord's doing, it is marvelous in our eyes, from the 118th Psalm. And I think she's provided us with the perfect ending words to our podcast. Elizabeth goes on to be a wonderful queen, but that is a story for another day. But if you'd like to learn more about Elizabeth's father and her childhood, you should check out the top 10 heads that rolled during the reign of Henry VIII on our homepage at www.howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. Let us know what you think. Send an email to podcast at howstuffworks.com. And be sure to check out the Stuff You Missed in History Class blog on the howstuffworks.com homepage. We are going to Italy. After the success of last year's trip to Paris, we are planning another similar trip, still with defined destinations, this time to Rome and Florence. Yeah, we are going to spend a week exploring some amazing things. We're going to have city tours of both Rome and Florence. We're going to see the Roman Colosseum, the Vatican Museum, and the Sistine Chapel, St. Peter's Basilica, Vatican City. This is just a tiny fraction of all the stuff we're going to get to do. Yeah, it's May 14th to 21st, 2020. And to get more information, go to defineddestinations.com and scroll down to the Roman Florence trip with Stuff You Missed in History Class. Available now from iHeart, a new series presented by T-Mobile for Business, The Restless Ones. Join me, Jonathan Strickland, as I explore the coming technological revolution with the restless business leaders who stand right on the cutting edge. They know there is a better way to get things done, and they are ready, curious, excited for the next technological innovation to unlock their vision of the future. In each episode, we'll learn more from the restless ones themselves and dive deep into how the 5G revolution could enable their teams to thrive. 
The Restless Ones is now available on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you listen to podcasts.